this morning. Um, some of you know that earlier this year we had our first holiday club, which was great. And um, we, we're in partnership with a church in London called St. Simon's. Um, the pastor there is a friend of ours, Mike Neville, who was down here last year. And um, when we were visiting them in, in June, they were, they were rather envious that we had beaten them to it in having our first holiday club. So uh, they've been thinking about how they could get back at us and show that they're one step ahead. And uh, this morning they really have gone the extra mile because they sent a WhatsApp with a photograph of a real donkey that they brought into church for their nativity. So we're really going to have to scratch our heads next year to see how we can get back on level terms. Anyway, a very happy Christmas to all of you. And um, do please have the passage open in front of you. And in case you're not familiar with the way things work here, uh, there's also an outline on the inside of the church bulletin. But uh, let me pray for us as we begin. Loving Father, we ask that you would uh, open the eyes of our minds this morning, that we might see truth and reality as you want us to see it so that we might live in the good of it. For Christ's sake. Amen. Well, I suppose at Christmas time, on Christmas Day, most of us um, want to find time to watch a favourite film. Uh, No doubt our film choices will vary quite a bit, depending on personal preferences, interests and other factors. Uh, But whatever our personal preferences, the, the mark of a really good film is that we get so caught up with it in our imagination that we're there. Uh, So personally, uh, if there's an interruption, I don't like it and I resist it because if the phone rings or there's a power outage or someone wants to start a conversation with me in the middle of the film, that brings me back to reality. And uh, for the duration of the film, I don't actually want to be brought back to reality uh, because I'm training for the Olympics with Eric Little uh, or I'm working undercover with Daniel Craig um, or I'm having tea with C.S. Lewis in Oxford. Now, there is that same kind of magnetic cinematic quality in the book of Revelation. Uh, It's as if John is saying to us, sit down I want to show you a film. And uh, he describes what is going on in very striking visual images. And at the end of the film, John doesn't want us to, as it were, snap out of it and come back to reality. What he's doing is he's saying, this is reality. If only you could see this, this is the backdrop to your lives, because whether you realise it or not, you are all part of what's going on in this book. So, instead of leaving it behind and going back to what we might think is reality, the vision should stay with us as we continue to live our lives. It should inflame our passions, it should inform our decisions. Because, you see, John is not simply trying to teach us Christian truth. There are other parts of the Bible 
that teach exactly the same truths that we find in the book of Revelation and arguably they do it rather more clearly. So John is not simply trying to teach us truth. He's trying to inspire us with truth. uh, To convince us of these truths so that we might live differently. Now, if you and I were uh, making a film of Revelation chapter 12, I think we might call it Hidden Christmas. Now, of course, you only have to spend five minutes, don't you, in one of the shopping malls in Cape Town to see that our culture is in complete denial about the message of Christmas. Uh, For a start, they don't even use the word Christmas anymore uh, in shopping malls I've been to, which aren't that many, I have to admit. Uh, It is simply the festive season. Whatever that phrase means, it's got absolutely nothing to do with the message of Christmas. Christmas has been well and truly hidden. But in Revelation 12, contrary to what most people think, the message of Christmas is actually very much alive and well. But a large part of it is happening behind the scenes, as it were. Most people are completely unaware of it. Now, to help us see what I mean, I'm going to give you three triplets from this chapter. You can see them on the outline in the bulletin. First of all, please notice with me three characters. Not quite an order of appearance, but here they are. There's the woman who's pregnant. Uh, There's the child she gives birth to. And there's the dragon. Now, who are they? The child, I think, is pretty straightforward. Uh, Come with me to verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Now, that is a quote from Psalm 2 in the Old Testament. And Psalm 2 speaks about the great divine king, the Messiah, And elsewhere, the Bible makes it perfectly clear that Psalm 2 is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is the male child in Revelation 12. What about the woman who gave birth to the child? Now you might say, well Simon, that's not even worth discussing. Uh, If Jesus is the child, well Mary must be the mother. But if you read the text carefully, the description does not fit Mary. Because this woman doesn't simply give birth to Christ. Notice that uh, after he's born, uh, after he's snatched up to heaven, that's talking about his ascension, the woman flees to the desert for 1,260 days. And we've already seen in a previous study that that is a way of talking about the church age. It's the whole period between the first and second coming of Jesus. So in Revelation 12, we're we're leaving Mary behind and we're thinking about something way, way bigger than that. And as you read it, you begin to realise that this woman represents the people of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And once again... The clues are Old Testament clues to help us understand it. So notice verse 1, have a look at it. 
we're told that this woman is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. Now that is a reminder of Joseph's dream in the book of Genesis. Do you remember? He sees the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down before him. And in Joseph's dream, the sun, the moon and the stars represent the family of Jacob. In other words, the the people of Israel. God's people in the Old Testament. The people from whom Christ would one day come. And then after he's ascended, what about the woman in the desert in Revelation 12? Well, that's the people of God in the New Testament. I'll come back and explain why later. So the woman represents the people of God. Then in verse 3, there's this enormous red dragon. Seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on his heads. The, The seven heads and the seven crowns are speaking about his tremendous authority. And the ten horns... Well, in the Bible, the horn is a symbol of strength, and the dragon has ten of them, so he's very, very strong. Who is it? Well, verse 9 tells us he's that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. I find it very interesting that the Bible just presents us with the fact that there is a devil. One of the big questions that... um, You have to ask in any world view, whatever your view of reality is, that concerns evil. You see, at some point, everybody, I think, asks the question, well, where does evil come from? In a purely materialistic world view, evil is, people say, coincidental. It's the consequence of natural, perhaps scientific processes. There's no objective good No objective evil, it's just part of the way things are. Other worldviews see it differently. Um, So another is the the worldview that we find in many films or science fiction books, which represent good and evil locked in battle. But in this worldview, good and evil are both equally strong, we're never quite sure which one is going to win. That worldview is called dualism. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the opposite. It begins, Genesis 1-1, with the phrase, in the beginning, God. God alone. The God who is alone, all alone, all powerful, perfectly good. Suddenly, in Genesis 3, two chapters later, the devil appears, the serpent appears. And you think, well, Where did he come from? He wasn't there in the beginning. And God's not responsible for him because God is never, never responsible for evil. But elsewhere in the Bible, you see, there are clues which suggest that the devil is an angel uh, who's rebelled against God. He wants to be God. He certainly doesn't want to be under God's authority. And he rebels. And in Genesis chapter 3, he incites human beings to rebel as well. He says, you too can be like God. 
you don't have to submit to God, follow me instead. And so human beings choose to turn away from God, to act as if they are God. But isn't it interesting that instead of finding the freedom that they were expecting and perhaps even hoping for, they find that they are in the devil's kingdom and they're under the devil's rule. And the Bible, you see, speaks of this battle going on constantly behind the scenes between good and evil. And Satan remains utterly opposed to the people of God. So there are the three characters. Now we've got to look at the three scenes or the three perspectives in the chapter. The first scene is in verses 1 to 6, which gives us the historical perspective. Now what John does here is absolutely astonishing. There's nothing else like it in the rest of the Bible because in just six verses he gives us the entire Bible story. He does it in a series of word pictures. So there's the woman, she's she's crying with pain, she's about to give birth, and there's Satan crouching, waiting to pounce as soon as the baby's born. Now we've already seen that the woman is Old Testament Israel. So think back through the story. In the Old Testament, Satan tempted humanity the whole world was spoiled but in Genesis 3 at the very moment when God delivers his judgment on the world there is the very first mention of the gospel God says there's going to be someone born of a woman who's going to crush the serpent and destroy him and from that moment on in the Bible story We're waiting for the serpent crusher. Who's it going to be? We know he's going to be one of Abraham's descendants, a part of the family of Israel, and Satan knows it too. And so throughout the Old Testament story, Satan is doing absolutely everything he possibly can to destroy Israel, to turn Israel away from God permanently. And he almost, almost achieves his goal. Israel rebels, you remember that? They are exiled from the land, but God is gracious. God brings them back, he preserves Israel. And then at last, a child is born of a woman, the Lord Jesus. He is the serpent crusher. But as soon as he's born, The devil is waiting to destroy him. Do you remember in Matthew's Gospel, the devil moves King Herod to initiate a campaign to have him killed. He sends his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all of the baby boys two years old and and, and under. But before that, just before that, God told Joseph to take Jesus down to Egypt. So God preserved him. Jesus then grows up, he begins his public ministry, and Satan conspires to turn absolutely everybody against him. Uh, The religious authorities hate him. The mob shouts, crucify, crucify, crucify. And Pilate gives in to their wishes. Jesus dies on the cross. And it looks as if Satan has achieved 
precisely what he wanted, but he's kind of snuffed out God's rescue plan. It looks as if Satan has won. But verse 5, chapter 12, have a look at it. The child is snatched up to God and to his throne. It's talking about his resurrection and his ascension. And now, the woman, the New Testament church, flees into the wilderness to a place prepared for them by God. Now that, you see, is reminding us of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Do you remember they've been redeemed from slavery in Egypt? They're heading for the promised land, and they are going to get there eventually. But for 40 years, they're in the wilderness. And in exactly the same way, the people of God are redeemed from slavery to the devil by the Lord Jesus. We are heading for the new creation. But in order to get there, we have to pass through the wilderness of this world. How long are we in the wilderness? Well, the end of verse 6, 1,260 days, which is the period we first looked at in chapter 11. I wonder if you remember that. Because there, the church was described as two witnesses proclaiming the gospel, being protected, yet also being persecuted. And how long were they doing it for? 42 months, 1,260 days, or three and a half years. It's a symbolic time period representing the age of the church. Very interesting. Last week we saw that that time period comes up in a prophecy in the book of Daniel. But it's very significant that that same time period crops up in a number of other places as well. I wonder if you remember Elijah pronouncing God's judgment on Israel of no rainfall. Israel didn't repent. Elijah was hunted down by Queen Jezebel. He felt very isolated. But God protected Elijah. God provided for his needs. How long for? James chapter 5, we're told it was for three and a half years. 42 months. And also, um, Numbers 33, you can look it up later, as the people of God set out to go through the wilderness towards the promised land, the various stages of their journey towards the promised land are described. How many stages do you think there are? There are 42. It's the period of wilderness wandering, waiting for the promised land, but experiencing God's protection, God's provision. So there's scene one, that's the historical perspective. It's the whole Bible story in six verses, scene two, verses seven to twelve. This is the heavenly perspective. Now this is not a different time period. It is exactly the same time period, but from, as it were, a different camera angle. Look at verse seven. And there was war in heaven... Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Now, Michael uh, appears in Daniel chapter 7 as 
as the commander-in-chief of the spiritual forces in heaven, and they're engaged in battle against the devil and his spiritual forces. And I want to say to you this morning that just because we can't see that with the naked eye, don't dismiss it as fantasy. Don't do that. This is picture language, but it is speaking about reality. And it's saying that this world is contested territory. And behind the scenes, a battle is raging between good and evil, between God and the devil. Who's going to win? Well, John says you don't need to worry about that because the decisive battle's already been won. It was won when Jesus Christ died on the cross. At that very moment, the New Testament says, he triumphed over his enemies, making a spectacle out of them. Jesus was snatched up to heaven. That's the declaration of his victory. So Satan's future is not in doubt. He's already been decisively defeated at the cross. But why? Why did the cross achieve that particular victory? This week I came came across a a lovely true story that makes the point really rather nicely. Uh, A man was busy writing in his study. Uh, It was a lovely summer's afternoon and his daughter was outside playing in the garden. And suddenly he heard her cries of distress. Daddy! Daddy! He rushed outside. What's the matter? Well, she was being pursued by a bee. So he said, come over here. And so she came over towards him and he put his arms around her. And as he did that, she felt him flinch. And then he let her go. He said, no, you can go and play now. You don't have to worry about the bee anymore. She said, well, why? What's changed? And he said, well, the bee has stung me. And bees don't sting twice. So now you're perfectly safe. And you see, on the cross, it is as if Jesus has, as it were, wrapped himself around sinful humanity, around you and me, and taken the sting of sin and death upon himself, taking the penalty that you and I deserve. And what that means is that those things can no longer touch us. Before the cross, the devil had you and I exactly where he wanted us. Because we have sinned. And because God is absolutely just, he can't accept us as his friends and family just as we are. Because by nature, we belong to the devil, to the dragon. But by taking the sting of sin and death himself, if we trust in Jesus, we've been set free from the power of sin and death from the devil. And now we belong to God because the devil has been defeated. The defeat is described for us, I wonder if you noticed it in verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down. That's very violent language. But it is great good news for us. The accuser has been dismissed. And the results of the victory are wonderfully portrayed in the song in verse 10 and following. John says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven 
say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. You see, previously, the devil could say to God, you can't accept these people because they're sinful and you're just. So, I'm sorry, but you can't have them as your friends. But when Jesus died on the cross, he took the penalty. The result is that the devil's voice no longer has any authority in heaven. No one is listening to the devil in heaven anymore. He's been hurled out. And so, you see, those who have already died with Christ are absolutely safe with him. The devil no longer has any say at all in the matter. And therefore, verse 12, Rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. He's talking about those people who've already come through the wilderness. They've died with Christ. They're in God's presence. They're absolutely safe. The devil can't touch them. Rejoice, you heavens. But now pay attention. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. In other words, the battle continues. And that brings us to the third scene in the chapter, verses 13 to 17, which we could call the contemporary perspective. So, we've moved forward in time. Satan has lost the decisive battle. He can't touch Christ. He can't touch Christ's people in heaven. But he won't admit defeat He's still raging today. And again, uh, his rage, his his ongoing conflict against the people of God is very dramatically uh, described in the chapter. So the dragon pursues the woman. But then in verse 14, she's given wings and she flies to the desert. And that's where you and I are this morning. So once again, we... Remember the Old Testament people of God passing through the desert on their way to the promised land. And like them, you and I are in a spiritual desert. This is our period of exile. But it is also a time of tremendous protection. Because I'm sure you remember that in the desert, God provided for his people manna and quail and water. He kept them going. It was a time of difficulty and hardship and persecution for the people of God. They're cared for, but Satan is still out to get them. There's a great deal of discussion in Christian circles as to what we should expect as Christians in the last days. There are some people who are pessimistic, who say it's going to be really tough, It's going to get harder and harder and harder until Jesus comes and then it's going to be great. Then there are others who are essentially optimistic and they say things are going to get better and better and better. Jesus comes back and then it's perfect. The Bible says we are to be optimistic but at the same time realistic. And it seems to me that the Bible's message 
is that this protection and the progress of the gospel and persecution are all going to be happening side by side until Jesus comes back. We should be optimistic. Jesus, you remember, sent out the 72 to proclaim his name and his message while he was still on the earth. And when they came back, they were absolutely delighted. They said, um, even the demons submit to us. And the, the Lord Jesus said, if you remember, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's the same image that we have in Revelation chapter 12. Satan's power has been decisively beaten. And so therefore, as you and I and this church go out with the good news of the gospel in 2020, we can expect wonderful things to be happening. Great progress. Gillian prayed about that. We've already had great progress in a number of different areas this past year. People from all kinds of backgrounds coming to faith in Jesus. So be optimistic. But be realistic, because Satan fights on And it won't be easy. At times we will make great progress. At other times the persecution and the opposition will feel almost overwhelming. At times both those things will happen together. Great progress, great persecution, all the way through to the end. Satan hasn't given up yet. So look with me at verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You see, there's a lot more going on here, here on earth, than meets the eye. And I want to say to you this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, And if you're listening to this and you think, you know what, intellectually, I just can't believe it. I simply want to say to you, won't you at least consider that there might be more going on than meets the eye? And that your objection might not simply be an intellectual objection. When I began to investigate the Christian faith 30 years ago, I remember reaching the point where I realised that there was more to it than an intellectual grasp of certain facts. I began to realise that there was a moral dimension to it as well. And although I wouldn't have put it this way at the time, I began to see that there is a spiritual dimension to it. So, for example, when I heard the Bible being read... I found I was drawn to it, but at the same time, I found I resisted it. There was, I don't want to get drawn in here. So there was this kind of spiritual tug of war going on inside me. And in exactly the same way, in the Christian life, there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. The Bible says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That means, listen to this, that means behind every temptation to turn away from God and do what we know is wrong, that is not just a sinful heart. 
there is a real spiritual enemy. But you see, in his attacks, we are not meant to see uh, the mighty blows of a great conqueror. What this chapter is telling us is we're meant to see them as the desperate lunges of a defeated loser. Look at the end of verse 12. He is filled with fury. Why? Because he knows that his time is short. So three characters, three scenes, and then as we close, three weapons. Uh, The book of Revelation, you remember, begins with seven letters to seven churches. The letters all end in the same way. uh, With a promise. A promise to him who overcomes, or to him who conquers. Uh, That person will receive the tremendous blessings in Revelation 21 and 22. The blessings that are coming in the new creation. But who are these people? Who are the overcomers? The conquerors? Well, they're described in verse 11. Now, this is a really lovely verse. Please have a look at it. Because this is a description of the people who make it to heaven. It says, They overcame him, that is the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now those are the three weapons they used, and we can use them too. First, the blood of the Lamb. See, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And the point is that the devil is forever trying to tell us the opposite. So he whispers in your mind, do you really think that God can accept you after what you did this week? If the people sitting around you knew what you said this week, what you did this week, what you thought this week, do you think they'd want to sit next to you? How can you even show your face in church, he says. And that's just this week. What about that sin? You know the one. The one that you hope no one's ever going to discover. If people knew about that, they wouldn't see you. See, Satan is saying something like that all the time. And what is the weapon that we use? It is the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus has already dealt with that sin. So my dear brother or sister, you're trusting in Christ, you are already clean, and Satan's accusation cannot stand. Second, second weapon, the word of, that te- of their testimony. Now that doesn't mean that we're standing up and sharing their testimonies in church every week, it doesn't mean that. It's talking about the word of God, about how they taught it and how they lived it. Some of you know Ephesians chapter 6, that famous chapter which speaks about the Christian's spiritual armour. And in the Christian's spiritual armour, there is only one weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit. And Paul explains in Ephesians that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And that's the weapon that we use in our battle against the devil. Uh, We sometimes use that weapon defensively, as G 
Jesus did. You remember when he was tempted by the devil in the desert, what did he do? He responded by saying it is written and quoting scripture. So that's an example of using the word as a defensive weapon. But it's not just a defensive weapon. It's also an offensive weapon. We're to use it offensively. See, how is the spiritual battle waged here on earth? How is the kingdom of God making such remarkable progress in a world that's turned its back on God? Well, obviously it's not with a literal sword, is it? No, the spiritual battle is not fought with a literal sword. It's fought with spiritual weapons, the word of God. How is it that nations, individuals and entire communities are turning to Christ? It's through the preaching of the word of God and the Holy Spirit opening the hearts of the listeners. And the result of that is that amazing things are happening all around the world today. So I wonder if you knew this, but there are more people from Muslim backgrounds coming to faith in Jesus than in all previous generations put together. That is a remarkable thing. Why is it happening? Well, the triumph is by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And then lastly, we read that they they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. We need to understand the context. Some of the people in the churches John was writing to had been killed for their faith. They had loved Jesus more than they loved their own lives. Now, the point for us is that we are to have that attitude if we're Christian people. What does that mean? Well, it's the attitude of martyrs the moment we come to Christ. Every Christian, the moment they come to Christ, is to say, here I am, here is the whole of me, I am yours. Now, when we have that attitude, Satan can't touch us. But you see, if by contrast we say, well, yes, my whole life is yours, Jesus, except my ambition. Well, that's the Achilles heel, and the devil will go for that every time. So your employer will say, well, if you really want to get on around here, you'd better keep quiet about your Christian faith. Uh, Or, do you want to get on? Well, you'd better compromise in this little area over here, or you'll never climb the corporate ladder. And because we're holding on to our ambition, our witness is seriously compromised. Or, um, we might say this, Jesus, you can have everything except my sex life. Now you see, that will be the Achilles heel that the devil will go for. Because a friend of yours will say, you know, you've never really lived until you've had sex. Or or you'll never find another person like her, or him. And because we haven't surrendered our sex life to Jesus, our witness, our discipleship, will be so seriously compromised it might even become completely invisible. But once we say, Jesus, here I am, all I have is yours and I'm laying it down at your feet, ultimately the devil can't touch us. 
Now, of course, time and time again, we will stumble. But that is not the time to give up. That's the time to remember again the blood of Christ, the promises of God, the word of his testimony. That is the time to keep fighting. And as we fight to remember the victory that's already been won and to remember the battle that's still raging behind the scenes. So, as you leave church this morning, my dear friends, don't snap out of it. Don't forget the film we've seen in Revelation chapter 12. Because John is saying that Revelation chapter 12 is reality. And we are to live our entire lives in the light of it. And we're to do it for the glory of God. Let's have a moment of quiet.